Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. Well, we just had uh, the most wonderful conversation with uh, Tariq Haddad, the CEO of Peace by Chocolate. Um, it's a fascinating story. I, I don't know about you, but I was I was mesmerized by the story in some ways. Um, I mean, it really tells the story of a refugee family leaving a war-torn uh, zone, uh, finding their way to a refugee camp, and uh, and and ending up of all places in the world, Anakinish, Nova Scotia. It's it's really truly inspiring. Yeah, there's so many elements that are inspiring and and interesting for the listeners. I mean, the fact that he they applied to 15 different countries and didn't get into any of them. Uh, Canada they came along after the fact they decided to apply here and got accepted. But also, Don, I was so interested to hear that the immigration officer was actually talking up the benefits of settling in a small community like Anaganish. I remember a time not that long ago when immigration officers, federal immigration officers would say, why would you ever want to locate in Anaganish? So this is a really good story. Hopefully, you know, these officers that are the interface with, with newcomers and immigrants and refugees are promoting uh, smaller communities across Atlantic Canada, because I think there is a good story to tell. And, and yes, they face maybe more hurdles in the small communities because they don't have that network that they would have in the large centers. But they also have smaller communities that are willing with to, to help bring them into these tight knit networks and, and support them. And that's a big part of the story here with uh, with Tariq and his family. What I like so much about this story, David, is uh, here's a family uh, of refugees that ends up in a small uh, Atlantic Canadian city. They are embraced by that community. They made, you know, made, uh, he mentioned it several times, they feel the love of the community around them. Um, and, you know, here we are about five or six years after they started their business. Um, you know, Tariq said that there's there are now 200 Syrians living in Anakinish. That is really remarkable. And you and I have talked about this many times that, you know, you need to have some critical mass immigrant groups to, to help retain communities. And Tariq actually said that, they haven't lost anybody. You know, other people coming to other parts are moving to Halifax or other cities, but they have retained that group of 200 Syrians, and it's likely to grow and become an important part of the fabric of the Anakinish County uh, community. So I think that that story is really um, worth telling, and um, I was really interested in, in hearing that, that, uh, that outcome. Interested also to hear his his observations about the fact that we don't promote our winters, and that's true. You will look at large tourism brochures, fifty page brochures of Canada, and you will never see a single reference to winter. I think we've been very reluctant to promote our winters to immigrants and to tourists. Uh, but he's right. There are lots of wonderful things to do in the winter: sledding, skiing, uh, uh, skating, uh, ice fishing. There's just so many things you can do in the winter. Uh, and we need to promote that more. I know in the Greater Moncton Immigration Strategy, we, we had a focus on making sure that every newcomer had access to winter uh, sports and winter recreational opportunities. And I think he was right. It's a little thing, but in terms of integrating into the community, if you spend six months of the year in your house, not, not stepping out in the winter or the cold, uh, it's going to make for tougher integration. So I thought his observation there was a good one. Yeah, and the timing of this podcast is really, you know, uh, 
pretty good because the environment uh, in, in, in Veronics Institute just released yesterday uh, findings that show support for immigration is on the rise uh, in Canada. It was high prior to this most recent research. I think that they worked with the Century Project uh, for this research, uh, which in indicates growing support for immigration uh, across Canada. And this is in a time to remind people where, you know, tough economic conditions, um, populism that is on the rise not across the world, and including Canada, nativism, is all working against immigration. And, and it seems to me that Canadians are growingly uh, in, in growing numbers accepting the value of immigrants uh, that come to our country. And honestly, Tariq and his family are a poster, um, you know, child uh, for this for this, um, you know, story. And uh, so it's very timely. Uh, by the way, the Stats Canada just came out uh, uh, this week with uh, the new numbers for the percentage of people who are living in this country who are immigrants. The number is 23%, almost one in four. Now, of course, in Atlantic Canada, those numbers are quite a bit lower. It's probably, I, don't, I haven't seen the numbers for Atlantic Canada. Maybe you have. But one of the things that they did release was the numbers of the cities um, with at least 100,000 population. And, uh, you know, Halifax has increased quite a bit. I think it's around 12% now. Both uh, Moncton and St. John are around 8 or 9%. So the numbers are increasing, but they're largely confined to the urban areas. So the story about rural, more rural communities like Anne and Kanish. Uh, attracting and growing their uh, immigrant population is doubly important, I think. Yeah, absolutely. No, the numbers did come out yesterday. Charlottetown, 16% of the population in Charlottetown are recent immigrants or non-permanent residents. So that's not all immigrants. That's just the ones that landed here between 2016 and 2021. So uh, Moncton, it's almost 11%. Halifax, 8%. Fredericton, 8.4%. So certainly immigration is driving a lot of our population growth in the region and creating great stories of entrepreneurship. And I think the, the environics data is just showing that Canadians understand we still have a demographic problem. We have another 10 to 20 years as the boomers retire. We don't have enough natural population to replace them, and we're going to need to bring people in. And I think the public sees that. They see it in healthcare. They see it in other industries. So it the only risk to that, and you and I have talked about this, is whether or not we can provide enough services to keep them here. If they can't have access to doctors, if they can't have access to uh, education, if they struggle for services, public services and private services, you know, if we can't support population growth in this region, that could be that could derail what right now seems to be a very positive trend. Yes, it is. Um, you know, uh, I think the thing that uh, that we found about the conversation that was interesting. It's not just about business with Tariq. It's about uh, community building. It's about peace. He has a, he, their, their company does a lot in terms of supporting uh, causes, including Ukraine recently raising $100,000 in a very short period of time to support uh, what's going on there. And uh, the, the, social the social side of the business is really compelling. Um, and, you know, let's face it, um, Tariq is an ambassador uh, really for immigrants and refugees and what they do uh, in this country. And uh, we've talked about this before. The myth that immigrants take jobs 
you know, his, you know, now being completely debunked. And, and he's a good example. They currently have 55 people working for their companies with plans to grow that significantly more in a small town like Andy Kanish, that they'll become a significant employer in that community. And it just shows the value, the entrepreneurial spirit, first of all, which we need more of in this region, especially, and, and the hard work ethic that allows them to be successful. It's a great story. It's such a great story that we decided to break this podcast into two parts because, um, you know, it, it, we, we just were, we loved the information that we were getting. The first part will really tell the story about um, leading up to Tariq and his family's arrival in Canada. The second part really focuses on what they've been doing in their business um, since their arrival. We just think it's so um, interesting that we decided to make it a two-parter. So uh, with that rather long introduction, <laughs> here's the first part of a two-part conversation with Tariq Haddock, the CEO of Peace by Chocolate. Tariq, welcome to our podcast. Don, thanks so much for the opportunity. A great pleasure. The story of you and your family's immigration to Canada from war-torn Syria is well known, but I wonder if you can tell our listeners a little bit about your decision to immigrate in the first place and the journey that led you and your family to Antigonish, Nova Scotia. Immigration was actually the last decision uh, that, that we took uh, before we said this is the end of it. You know, this is the, the last breath of life that we can really make after losing everything to the war in Syria, after... Uh, we had uh, lost our house. We had lost our factory in a bombing in, by the end of 2012. Uh, many of my family members who were uh, killed, a lot of them uh, went arrested. And still, some of them are still missing that we don't know anything about them until today, if they are still alive or not. So when we lost everything in Syria in 2012 and 2013, we made the decision to leave to Lebanon. And we thought this was going to be a temporary thing. We thought the war is going to be over in a month or two. And uh, that's why actually when we arrived in Lebanon, we just uh, decided that, yes, let's just think about when we come back, what are we going to do? Uh, but that did not happen. Not in a month, not in two, not in a year, not in two. Uh, when we were in Lebanon, it was uh, literally counting down to death for my dad and my uh, parents who uh, were seeing my siblings out of schools uh, when we were not able to do anything. We, we had to sign waivers that we're not going to work. Uh, we had to sign waivers that we are not going to send you know, our uh, uh, families to schools, public schools in Lebanon. And we cannot just even, if someone gets their, their hand broken, you cannot go and get insurance. You cannot go and get health care in uh, hospitals there but the generosity of lebanese people was absolutely outstanding hosted one million syrians over uh two and a half years compared to four million lebanese who live in lebanon so almost you know uh you know 20 to 25 percent of the population arrived extra uh, you know within two years so that was really a big increase so by the end of 2014 i made a decision to immigrate to a country to resettle with my family and to be honest, uh, David, I applied to go to almost 15 countries. Like imagine me applying to go to Spain or to Portugal or to the UK or France or Australia, New Zealand, all of those countries and the US as well. But none of them opened the doors for us. Every time I applied, they would tell me that there is no chance. They're not taking any refugees at the moment. And that was heartbreaking because they were not saying they're not taking immigrants. They specifically said they're not taking refugees. 
And that was heartbreaking on many levels because a lot of those countries thought that refugees uh, were as stereotyped in the media, were, were as stereotyped, you know, uh, within politics is that the human beings who uh, just uh, come and rely on uh, welfare systems, on taxpayers' money to arrive in a new place, and they take more than they contribute. And that is a mistake. That is, uh, that is actually a huge mistake. So I applied to come to Canada uh, in 2014. I did my interviews in 2015. And the reason actually why I ended up uh, applying to Canada is because of a cab driver. Uh, without him, I would not be here today. A cab driver that I just met, uh, you know, when I left my office, I was volunteering with the UN and WHO. You know, I decided at that time that uh, you either play the role of a victim or you play the role of a victor. And then I decided to 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 take the second option, you know. And then I, when I was working with the UN and WHO, actually volunteering, really, because the term work does not apply to refugees in Lebanon. When I was volunteering with the UN, I would leave my office and then I would see a cab driver who would drive me to see my family. And then I would tell him all about my story. And then he would, he would tell me all about Canada. So I would uh, forget about, you know, the whole thing because I would give up. You know, I already applied to 15 countries. How is Canada going to be different to me? I would apply and then within a few months, I would get a call. Be like, this is George from the Canadian Embassy in, in Beirut. And you're invited for an interview. And I went to the interview and then... I got invited to travel with my family based on a community uh, sponsorship. Actually, it was a BVOR uh, in invitation and community sponsorship. And I had no clue where that was. They didn't tell me where in Canada. They didn't tell me who the community was. They didn't tell me anything. They were just like, you can be anywhere. You can be on the far west coast or the far east coast, or you can be in Toronto or you can be in Winnipeg. Who knows? And then, uh, you know, within nine months, you know, since I did the first interview, I would go and tell my family, guys, we're going to travel. And everyone would be so scared because, you know, they, I did not tell them. I, I was like, this is a very far place from, from Lebanon. And would be like, where? To the U.S.? I said, no. I said, to Australia? I said, no. They tried every country on earth. And then I told them, I'm going to go to Canada. But all they were so scared and they told me, Canada is too cold. You know, they, they, they all were so scared and afraid of coming to Canada as one of the coldest countries on the planet. Uh, but uh, it was absolutely fascinating for us to keep learning about Canada for almost nine months until my flight arrived finally in Toronto on December 18 in 2015, and my family followed me. Now, coming to, to Atlantic Canada specifically was not our decision. Actually, I would go to the Canadian consul in uh, Lebanon, and I tell him, you know, I lived in Damascus my entire time. Damascus is a city of uh, millions of people. And I was like, probably I'm going to end up in one of the MTV, which is Montreal, Toronto, or Vancouver. And then he would tell me, no, actually, you are not going to one of the big cities. And he was like, I'm doing you a service. You don't want to go to a big city. And I was like, why? Actually, I was raised up in a big city. He was like, I'm going to get you in a small town with your family. And let me tell you why. And I said, why? He said, because in a small town, you would find a sense of family. You find a sense of home you'd find a sense of community. And that is something that is hugely missing in a big city. When you arrive in a big city, you're just a number. No one would know that you're a newcomer. No one would know that you're a refugee. No one would know that you just arrived. But in a small town, everyone would know you because everyone knows everyone. And then they would come and help you. They would surround you with love and compassion and empathy. And that's really what you need for your first few years. 
And I actually, actually did not believe that this could be true until I landed in Atlantic Canada, until I landed in Nova Scotia. I actually did not end up in Halifax either. I went to, uh, to Antigonish, a small town of uh, 5,000 people with university students at St. FX. And uh, I would certainly be showered with love and, and compassion, as uh, the council mentioned. And this was the biggest service that anyone really would do to me. And then my family followed me earlier in 2016 when we all landed here and we started our lives together. That's a fantastic story. I'll just tell you, if you go back 20 years, we heard stories of immigration officers telling immigrants, why would you ever want to locate in a place of Nova Scotia? Now right. we're seeing the opposite. I think that's so cool. And that's such a great part of your story. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the winter. You did say you landed in Nova Scotia during the winter. You came from a very, very that's warm right. climate. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, that transition to the to the cold weather, but also any other early challenges you had when you were settling into the new community? Absolutely. Well, uh, you know, I left uh, Lebanon with my uh, spring uh, jacket on and it was uh, rainy. I think it was 25 degrees when I landed, when I left uh, Beirut in uh, Lebanon. And when I landed in, uh, when I landed in Toronto, it was one of the coldest nights of the winter, actually, it was the start of the cold. And uh, I just felt that cold really hitting my bones. Uh, so the transition was certainly um, uh, very, uh, uh, very huge in terms of the uh, acclimatizing to the Canadian uh, winter and Canadian weather. But at the end of the day, you know, when I arrived in Toronto, I would go out of the plane. I was one of the first few people to get off that plane. And I would meet the governor general at the time. And then after I met the governor general, we would go through that station where they were giving us these huge jackets, winter jackets and toques that Canadian really had had made for us and uh, heavy boots. And they were like, I was like, guys, this is like for the North Pole. You know, this is for like Antarctica. And they were like, no, you're going to really need those in Toronto, in Halifax, anywhere you go in the country. This is Canadian winter. Welcome. Welcome home. And then actually, I realized that, yes, that's going to be a different journey in the winter compared to what I used to live in Syria. Although, you know, we used to get some um, uh, different kind of cold in, in Syria, especially in uh, January and February, but uh, nothing compared to Canadian uh, winters for sure. And I used to grow up in Damascus when it used to snow. It would be like a national holiday. Uh, it, it snows probably once a year there. Uh, or probably once every two years. And whenever it snows, you'd find everyone on the streets just having the best time ever. And it's really like snow, like 10 centimeters or 15 centimeters and not too much, but everyone would be really having uh, an absolute uh, great time. And that's why we in Damascus, we used to travel almost 100 to 200 kilometers to really find to the up, you know, uh, hills or uh, the, the summits of the mountains to really find snow and to really enjoy a weekend with our family playing with snow. And uh, since I came to Canada, I just realized this is you don't really actually have to leave your your even <laughs> your home. It's going to come to you. So yes, I mean that was that was different. And in terms of um, you know, I feel like there is a lot missing in terms of promoting Canadian winters to immigrants before they arrive here. Let me tell you why, because everything you see before you come to Canada uh, as an immigrant is really all about the summer. Like everything you see in uh, on, in the news or in the media or on on uh, IRCC or the government websites, they are, everything is taken between May and October. 
uh, no one shows you anything between November and April, right? And like no one really would tell you the horrors of one meter of snow that needs to be shoveled after a snow blizzard uh, here in Antigua or in Cape Breton. The only thing you would see online is about the fun summer activities, the hiking, kayaking, going on the beach, watching the sun go down, raising your feet at the cottage, right? This is really the fun thing that you would see. So, I mean, arriving in Nova Scotia, finding the warmth of the community that were, that always really uh, uh, beat the uh, the call of the winter, uh, I think that was uh, one of the, our biggest inspirations, really, to, uh, to stick to where we are, uh, to find our sense of uh, belonging in the community. But at the same time, I think making the best out of the opportunity, whether you live in, in winter, whether you live in, in the summer, you will always find something to do, especially here in Nova Scotia. There is no shortage of fun activities, really. And to get acclimatized, for sure, for uh, my family, it was uh, not easy. But I'm very happy that uh, now everyone really finds something that they can entertain themselves with, especially in the winter when they have all these activities. And they all learned, actually, to uh, to do skating. Uh, we And the, one of the first activities we did was just go sledding actually in in Antigonish, and it was a uh, huge fun every time i look at that video it was really one of the the most fun activities i've ever done uh, Tariq, you have been uh, become personally a, a bit of a role model to represent the immigrant community and what it brings to canada you, you spend a considerable amount of time speaking to groups about your experiences as a newcomer to canada maybe you could tell us what led to the decision to you know, step up as a spokesperson for immigrants uh, coming to the country, and and maybe how is that role evolving over time? Because you you do a lot of public speaking, too, right? Absolutely. You know, uh, Don, when I am on stages speaking to um, Canadians, speaking to anyone around the world, uh, first I speak about myself. I, I tell a story, and then I leave it up to them to decide. If this is a human enough story to be generalized a little bit, uh, not all the time generalization comes with good results and outcomes, but in some cases, learning about one's experiences and stories and journeys can really lead us to change our minds about how we are perceiving someone coming from away. And I truly believe, you know, being on stages and having that platform is a privilege. You know, when I get a mic and I stand in front of 500,000 people, 5,000 people, and speak to them about our story, this is a huge honor. This is a huge privilege. But also, it is a responsibility. Like, I'm talking to 5,000 people. They are, not all of them have similar views on immigration. Not all of them have similar views in terms of what success might mean for entrepreneurs, and especially for refugee entrepreneurs. And not all of them really have uh, similar uh, experiences and going to find our story relevant to them. Because uh, what I find is, actually, this is the, one, of, one of the most interesting parts of me telling my story, is a lot of people who were born in Canada and never left Canada to live abroad, and they still live here, uh, I feel like we are disconnected you know, from other parts of the world that they are struggling right now with the real the real world crisis. I think first world problems are not real world crisis. When we think about, you know, what's what goes on in countries like Syria or what's happening in in Afghanistan or what's happening in Iraq or Ukraine or uh, any anywhere around, uh, you know, anywhere around the world, we really find ourselves that we are too 
too blessed. You know, we find ourselves that we are we have all these points of gratitude that we are missing every single day. With everything going on, we are not a perfect country, but we are we are a great country. We are on the way to really, I think, uh, we are on the way to excellence. We did not reach excellence yet. And that's why actually Canada is the number one best country to live in the world, but we are not the number one most peaceful country in the world. We are the number 12 most peaceful country in the world. And I believe that, you know, for me, as someone who arrived here with, uh, uh, with a great uh, attitude towards adaptation, you know, I, I truly take that as, you know, um, a way to uh, reinvent myself. Uh, since I arrived in, in Canada, I have really taken every chance to reinvent uh, our family's uh, journey, our family's passion, our family's purpose, but at the same time, keeping our values. And I believe, you know, whenever I'm on stages, I uh, take that very uh, near and dear to, to, to my heart and really talk to audiences about our journey from having lived in peace for uh, the most of our lives, you know, in Syria considerably, although living there uh, in peace in fake peace, I call it, because there was so much corruption. We were living in an authoritarian uh, uh, regime. Uh, we even were scared to speak our truth and to even aspire to be uh, something big and to aspire to be too successful because that would be a threat to the establishment, right? So that's why in Syria, you would find all those people that they were dreaming big since they were born. Uh, they would be they would be so scared actually to to take the next steps to uh, to get involved into politics or to get involved into the parliament or to uh, to lead any organization because you really have to uh, uh, you have to belong and you have to be very loyal to uh, to the government and the regime and that's really what not, a lot of people really did not prefer. So since I came to Canada, I was really just describing to Canadians where I lived for a long period of my life until I got here and all these experiences that people can connect to uh, in terms of me as a human being arriving here, seeking safety and peace uh, for, for those who never had to make these choices, uh, for those uh, whose biggest struggles probably in their lives was, yeah, let's just, let's just figure out how probably to, uh, to build our careers or to plan for our next vacation or to really, you know, think about what uh, what's going to go, what's going to happen in the next uh, five years. And I think this is a privilege, you know, for a lot of people around the world. Uh, they cannot even plan for tomorrow, you know, because of the instability. A lot of people around the world, they do not have that chance to even think about their next five years to 10 years. Uh, many Canadians actually plan for their next 50 years. They know exactly how the roadmap of their life is going to happen. Because they, they, everything is stable. We live in a democratic society considerably. You know, we are uh, more stable than a lot of the G7 countries actually right now, which is absolutely fascinating. So for me, you know, uh, I have a, a newcomer voice with experiences from living through peace to war and the journey home to arrive in Canada. And I think the, the experience that I like to focus on a lot uh, is the, the refugee experience. Now I am a proud Canadian citizen, but the refugee experience is something that has changed everything about the way I look at the world. Because before that crisis, I never thought that human beings were so resilient. Before that crisis, I never thought that human beings were adaptable. Before that crisis, I really never thought that we can even make it out of a war-torn country. When I was looking at 
uh, Iraqi refugees before the war in Syria. And I was like, these human beings are powerful. How can someone adapt to a new country just like that? And truly, really, I had to live through it. That was the big proof to myself. And that's what I wanted to transfer to, uh, to Canadians. So actually, uh, the immigration journey was one part I was speaking on before the pandemic. And then I started relating so much of my experiences of resiliency through adversity to Canadians who were so resilient and they had their sense of renewal during and after the pandemic. So I think, you know, I found my, uh, my common grounds with audiences from far east to far west. It does not really matter. As long as I speak about entrepreneurship, immigration, and about humanity in general, and what brings us together in a world that is so divided, because we live in a world right now that is so easy to be sold with intolerance and hatred, more than kindness and compassion. And that is a problem. That is something that we all need to work toward, uh, towards really changing because uh, I believe we share so much as human beings more than the things that, that divide us. We have our own differences, which is a beautiful thing, but these differences should not be the fuel for hatred or anxiety towards someone else because they look different, they practice different religion, they have a different background. All these things, something we did not decide. Let's just judge ourselves and the others by the character of our purpose. And I think the uh, the goal for all of us as human beings is once and for all, you know, living in, uh, living in peace, harmony, and just enjoying a happy life. Uh, Tariq, I recently had the opportunity to watch the movie that was made about your family's journey to Canada. I actually did it on a plane. I think you posted recently, you've seen somebody watch it on a plane. I was one That's of those right. people. So it was a really interesting and uh, compelling movie, by the way. Uh, I would recommend it to others to uh, to watch. Can you just uh, tell us the, uh, why you agreed to do the movie in the first place and, and maybe what role you had in terms of its content? I was reached out by Jonathan Kaiser, the, the movie maker who is based out in L.A. with Magnetic North. And uh, John would have connections to Nova Scotia as he was born and raised in uh, in Halifax. And then he went to LA and he would tell me he watched our story on the news. He actually followed our journey throughout the one year documentation that CBC did on us in the entire in the entire year in 2016, leading up to 2017 until the prime minister talked about our story at the United Nations. And then I told uh, Jonathan that actually I was not too sure that our story should be a movie because like there is a lot of stories out there, right? Like people are watching the news. Why would they go watch a movie? If you watch the news at that time, everything was about, yes, Canada is welcoming refugees. Canada is embracing refugees. Canadians are showing up at the airport at midnight. So this is not the news. No one is going to go to a theater to watch this. They can just watch their TV and they would see the same thing on CBC and CTV, right? But then I realized that we are, we in Canada are doing too much good that the world is missing. And we need to amplify our stories way more for the world to watch and get inspired by the compassion and the kindness of Canadians. And uh, I told Jonathan that, uh, yes, let's, let's work on developing the story in an interesting way to an international audience. And I find it really hard because uh, a lot of Canadian stories are really too good that they get lost within the messiness you know, of Hollywood the messiness 
of the, the media landscape right now across the globe. And I find that this is really to, to be too unfortunate. That's why since Jonathan reached out to me, we started working really hard to get the movie out as soon as possible. When there's so much, uh, you know, when people were not, they did not have apathy towards, you know, refugees and towards opening the doors yet. When uh, we believe that until the next crisis happen, this is going to shift the focus and the trend from the media. And actually, we started talking about the movie in 2017. I would do, I would do an interview with Jonathan for almost four hours and be like, there is so much, so much to tell here. Let me get back to you. Uh, and actually, at that time, I believed, as, as the, the quote used, used to, to go, uh, you know, that we are not uh, victims, but we are victors that we set the world on fire with our truth. And we should not be afraid to tell that truth. And that's why the movie was so important to me and to my family. To, to get someone else on the other side of the, of the world, someone in, in Orlando, Florida, someone uh, out there in New Zealand, someone in Japan, whoever people are, wherever people are, they will get inspired, hopefully, by the kindness and generosity of Atlantic Canadians, of Canadians in general, opening their doors and welcoming a family like ours. So uh, I felt that uh, we have a responsibility, actually, to keep telling the story. And to be honest, uh, Don, that was really one of the things that I had in my mind since I came to Canada. And I really encourage every immigrant to do the same. Keep telling your story in all mediums and on all platforms. You never know who needs your light. You never know who's going to get their life changed because you told that story. Even though you tell it 100,000 times, if you change one person's mind, you already won. And I believe that a lot of immigrants before they were too afraid, too afraid to document their journeys. I would go and meet a lot of Syrian immigrants or Lebanese immigrants who came to Nova Scotia 100 years ago. And I would tell them, did you tell your children why you made that journey? They were like, it was not too important, you know. It was just like a one decision of a million things that I had to make when I was, when I was young. I was like, no, your children, they need to know where they came from, to know where they are going, as my grandmother used to say. And I would find a lot of people did not document their early years of their immigration journey. And that was really unfortunate because in the first five years, a lot of our journeys determine really where we are going next in a country like Canada. And that's why I did every interview I can. I, we, we wrote a book, we did the movie, and we are trying to do every piece of documentation to this journey throughout my TEDx talks or being on stages or writing you know, blogs. All of that is for the next generation of our family to really know why we ended up in Canada and why we had to take that uh, that decision to leave. And I believe that this was uh, something we are very proud of. And, and we worked on the movie for quite some time until it went into production. And we filmed actually uh, a month and a half before the pandemic. So we filmed in January 2020 in Montreal. And that was really the best thing that ever happened because we took advantage of just gathering 100 to 200 people in a room and do you know the the most fun scenes that you know, to be able to watch? But we are very proud, you know, to uh, to have the movie right now uh, on demand. Hopefully, it's going to have its uh, online streaming uh, very soon. It was it had really huge success in movie theaters in the release in May. Uh, Tarek, we learn we learn in the movie that your personal desire was to become a medical doctor when you landed in Canada. But you set those aspirations aside to help your father establish uh, peace by chocolate. 
and then you've eventually decided to concentrate on that business. Do you have any regrets about not being able to pursue your medical dream? Um, there was one point that I missed actually talking about the movie is that it's not it's not so true. It's not also true. It's you know there's so much drama added to it. So sixty percent <laughs> okay. of the movie is truth, and then forty percent is drama additions. <laughs> and then that's why Jonathan, when he called me, and he'd be like, "Tarek, your story is too good, too positive. I need a conflict." give me a conflict i'm like there's no conflict you live if you live in nova scotia you would not like there's no conflict what should i give you and then he would go to the writers and then they would come up with all these kind of plots and one of them was you know about like the family dynamics about you know the son and the father and then the competition in town as you would see in the character of kelly the other chocolate shop which does not exist to a lot really of the uh you know the additions that they had to make to make the story a little bit appealing because if they, if you take any story and put it up on the, the big screen, it's going to be boring. That's why they really just did did all these additions to really make okay. it a little bit more appealing. But for me personally, I came to Canada actually after studying medicine for uh, four years in in Syria and also doing some uh, at the uh, uh, universities in Lebanon, doing some courses at universities in Lebanon. But also when I landed here, I realized that it's going to take me another ten years to reach the level where I left. Uh, back home. So it was uh, frustrating, to be honest. And uh, I started digging into how we can change the system. And it, I felt like this is going to be a ra- take me into a rabbit hole. Let's just focus, keep the focus on rebuilding the family business. And then there is a line in the movie that was so true, which I say, it's never too late, never too late to be whoever you want to be. And that's why we started the business right away. So really focusing on becoming a doctor was the, uh, the big focus in in the first three months of arriving in Canada. And then we shifted that focus entirely as a family because we had to make a decision. Where is the family going? And we had to stick together afterwards. I wanted to ask you about the chocolate factory in Damascus that you told us earlier was destroyed by bombing. The first question is, did you tell the immigration officers in these 15 countries that you were actually ran a successful business in Damascus? Did you was that part of the interview process? was actually the, one of the first few questions, yes, at the at any interview, because they would ask you, what did you do back home? And no one really, no one seemed to uh, really uh, care, and uh, that did not seem to make any difference to them. Because to them, once you lost anything in your home country, you're just nobody. You're nothing. That's and- very surprising to me, Turek. I mean, I bet you all 15 of those countries would want you now. Well, I mean, I was really, uh, I always believe that everything happens for a reason. And I'm really happy that my application was not approved anywhere else, to be honest. I'm like, I'm like, this is the best thing that happened to you. Because I traveled to a lot of those countries after I came to Canada on my travel document, even before I became a citizen. And then now I know why this happened. I know why all those countries refused me. And now I know the blessing of having to wait so much to be in the most wonderful country on the planet. And uh, and then I started really believing more in the process. Let the process take its time. You know, get the 15 rejections to get your best approval ever. And I believe, you know, in, in, in that all the time. Every time I think about what happened uh, for our family before arriving here, and I, I, I'm always thankful, really. It was a huge learning curve. We're going to ask you about your business in Nova Scotia uh, next, but I just wanted to ask you first, how big was the factory in Damascus? How many employees roughly was it uh, uh, before it was destroyed? 
the factory actually was uh, was really uh, a massive. Uh, my dad had a large distribution network. He had hundreds of employees, so uh, was redistributing chocolate all over uh, the Middle East, but also to Europe. My dad was sending chocolate to uh, to Turkey, to Spain, to the UK, and some of the chocolate ended up in Belgium. Uh, so imagine, like you know, Belgium probably is one of the only countries on the planet yeah. that they do not need more chocolate, but they believe that there was something special about the cereal flavors that my dad was making. Can I ask you just a, maybe it's an indelicate question, and you don't have to answer it if you don't want to. But were you able to get any capital out of Syria, or or or, or were you sort of like did did, did were, were you able to bring any money out of Syria when you became a refugee? Not not at all. Not at all. You know, the regime was so brutal that once you leave the border, they would be checking into you. Like at the checkpoint, once you are getting out of the country, they would be checking literally everything. And then they will have to prove before leaving Syria that you are just going there for two weeks. And then you'd have to tell them that you'll be back. And I was at the age of military service. My dad had to convince them that we lost the business back in Syria in the war because of the rebels actually it was not and then they would have to tell them that hey because we lost everything we are going to have to come back because how are we going to survive out there and that was really one of the things uh, you know because after losing the, the factory losing the business the distribution networks and the house uh we ended up with absolutely nothing in lebanon like starting like newborn babies and uh and that was really the hardest part for my dad after losing the factory he spent three days speechless was saying everything has gone everything has gone like imagine if you work so hard to build an empire with your blood sweat and tears and then in a split of the moment everything will be gone so uh, i'm really grateful that you know when we came to canada we did not start from scratch we did not bring any money we did not have any money but we started from experiences and we did not lose they say a lot of people you know um I think missed the point when they say they lost everything. Actually, we did not lose everything. You know, we probably lost everything materialistically, but we still had our skills and our talents. No one comes to Canada empty. No immigrant comes to Canada empty. No refugee comes to Canada empty. Everyone had their skills and their talents and they never lose even in a war. This is our intellectual property. And uh, I believed, you know, in just using that intellectual property to uh, restart and reinvent uh, the business. It was the rebirth, of actually, of a new chocolate empire with different uh, cause, and uh, that's what we are really the most happier about. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights podcast. Tune in next week for part two of Don and David's conversation with Tarek, where he'll talk more about how they rebuilt the family business in Canada. You can follow the Insights podcast and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.